to look at some Zen quotes from some Zen Chinese Zen master of ancient times, but I want also to make this relevant to you now during this retreat, but at the same time giving you a certain flavor about Zen. the first quote, and then at the end you can see the quote again, I left them on the board. And I'll try to pronounce it well, so you can't hear it. So the first quote is, No mind is to see and to know all things with a mind free from attachment. When he uses it pervades everywhere, yet it speaks nowhere. What we have to do is to purify our mind so that the sixth aspect of consciousness, in passing through the sixth sense organs, will neither be colored by nor attached to the sixth sense object. So what has this got to do with us? A lot. What I find interesting first is this idea of no mind. This you find a lot in the Zen, the idea of no mind, of no thought, thoughtlessness. But often there is this idea when we see the word, we think no mind, it means that I sit in meditation and there must be nothing. Like I must be this kind of like blank person sitting there. But this is not at all what you're supposed to do. With, because I think this is an impossible task and I don't see the point of sitting there with a brain not firing. I mean, how can't you stop your brain firing? I think this would be fairly impossible. But what the Huineng says, the Sikh Patriarch, is no mind is to see and to know all things. So actually, no mind means your, your mind is very bright, it's so bright that you see and you know all things, but free from attachment. And this is the key to this no mind, this freedom from attachment. So in a way, it is free from grasping, it is free from sticking. And that's why it goes on to say, when you, when you use this no mind, it pervades everywhere. So in a way, it enables us to reach out everywhere. So this, this feeling, this experience of vastness, of openness, we're trying to cultivate in meditation, and yet, it speaks nowhere. And often I have this feeling that we're actually like Velcro. Anything that comes, and we cannot, cannot stop. And he says, you know, when there is no mind, then it doesn't speak anywhere. And I think this is to me what meditation is actually about, is de-speaking. We kind of de-velcroize mm-hmm. our being in a way, it seems to me. So then he says, what do we have to do? What we have to do is to purify our mind. And this is stressing this idea of purification. Because often when we think of purification, we think of getting rid of the bad things. We have to get rid of things. But that's not what he says. It's not about eradication. But actually, 
we have to purify our mind so that the six aspects of consciousness, kind of our hearing consciousness, smelling consciousness, etc., in passing through the six sense organs of the eyes, the ears, the tongue, etc., will neither be colored nor attached to the sense object, what we see, what we hear, what we smell. And to me, in a way, this is our opportunity during these next three days in meditation together here. Can we look at this? This not being colored, this not being attached to what we encounter through our contact, through our organs. So how can we not be caught? How can we not proliferate? How can we not exaggerate when we come into contact with the sound, with something we see, with something we taste? Let's look at what we see. You know, you go, for example, during the free walking. If you don't train, you can possibly walk outside. And you might notice that at the beginning of the week when it was sunny, you would walk and see, look at the trees and the, the leaves were bright green and now that it's raining everything looks darker so in a way it's interesting that in a way we can get caught oh this is so beautiful and then we look at it again and it is very different so in a way what is it we're getting caught by because often we caught by something that will change anyway and i think this is in a way what is strange to grasp at something that is changing we can notice that with when we look at things. Another thing we seem to do with visual objects is what I call, and it can show us how we proliferate. And like when we come out, up here to this room, I don't know if you have noticed, but being a gardener, I have noticed there is a beautiful red camellia. And I pass and I see, mmm, red camellia. Mm. I have a little hole in my garden. Could I plant <laughs> a red camellia? But it's under a chestnut, and I would have to be peed. And I'm not with the red camellia anymore. I am somewhere else. But it's interesting to notice you see something, and actually you get caught. And then you get kind of, you, you kind of, you don't see it anymore. You don't see the camellia, the redness, the, the beauty of it, the fact that it's there now to be with it, to be experienced. We cannot we proliferate, we cannot go somewhere else. Not easy if we do this. In daily life, what we can in a way look at in terms of that, I think is very interesting is to kind of go in the street with the shop. I mean, this is a, a kind of something we can notice all the time. You know, you pass in the front of the shop window and maybe it's a, ooh, nice, a dress. Ooh. And it's interesting, it's like there is this kind of weird kind of, kind of energy going on between you and the object. Ooh. Or possibly if you're into computers, the latest, ooh, computers kind of like, again, it's interesting that movement that's in a way getting caught. And then what is interesting in that cat being caught is the, the glow that is around the object. That's the kind of the, the catching kind of seems to create this exaggeration. And so in a way to notice that, 
the kind of flow. How does it happen? What happens? I think also we visual objects in terms of contact, what we can notice in daily life is that how sometimes we're actually getting caught, grasping at an object visually that is not there. And that I think is really interesting. I saw that when we moved to France and we had to repair our house and we needed a staircase to go to the meditation room, very important. And I was visualizing this beautiful staircase. <laughs> and then we could not find somebody to do it, and then we were desperate to get to the room, and so finally we got a very ordinary staircase. Not very nice at all. But we did the job. And so I would go to do the meditation, and every time there was a feeling of, oh, and then I realized I was seeing two staircases. <laughs> there would be that one and the dream one. And they were there. It was a very strange experience. Which actually, I was grasping at a visual object that was not there. And as soon as I saw it, then I kind of, I could let it go because these were strange things to do. But often I think that's what we might do in life, and that might make us very frustrated. Another thing that we can notice with visual objects, possibly, is pattern with visual objects. Our things have to be in their places. And my nephew seems to be that way. <coughs> I have not seen it myself, but once they tricked him, because his uh, mother would not believe his wife. And said, you'll see. So the wife moved various objects. He came back from work, and he did not even say hello, that he went to the object and they all went back in their place within two seconds. And his mother was like, wow, this was amazing. to the visitor. But it's interesting how this kind of being caught by visual thing then becomes like a pattern in a way. And then you think, it's not only that you cannot be tidy, but to that extent, it is interesting. The kind of look, is that kind of like, you know, such a kind of uh, being caught visually. Then you have sound. And this is something we can experiment with. As we sit here, especially in the afternoon, what I would kind of suggest is you sit, and try to be aware, to meditate. And then there is people getting up for the interviews, opening the door, coming back, kind of settling, shuffling, blankets and everything. And then just kind of, how do we listen to that? I also like it when we kind of, we walk and then we stop and then everything, there is five minutes, everybody shuffles. And then there is a silence. Interesting. How are we with the shuffle shuffle? How are we with the silence? How are we with the birds? Because when the birds do their things, the rogues, whatever, all the birds, do we listen to them the same as the shuffle, or the opening of the, of the door, or somebody coughing, or whatever? Trying to see what is it that calls us? What is it we get caught by? What is it we don't get caught by? Well, in terms of sound. 
I know for myself in uh, living in France, I have uh, often uh, this interesting summer. We live in a beautiful village, beautiful terrace, countryside, it's beautiful, very idyllic. And then one afternoon we were sunbathing, as we do in France in the summer, on the terrace, and then suddenly there is this music. Later I was to know it was garage music. <laughs> and it was amazingly loud and it was amazingly something. And for three hours. And we wondered what's going on. I mean, you know, a little rural village. And then later we learned that the neighbor's uh, son was trying to kind of train to become a DJ. So he had to kind of pray. Uh, but it was interesting to kind of, you know, after a while I kind of enjoyed it, you know, to kind of, you know, when he came and when he stopped, he kind of, just kind of being with the experience. You know, how can we, instead of being caught and exaggerate, how can we be with her? How can we play with them? I mean, one thing I have not succeeded with the sound, I must say, I have a, there is a kind of, an Still working on it, baby crying. The, the nephew has three daughters, three and twins of one years old. And I mean, I know, as soon as they cry, I kind of diversion. <laughs> I can't just sit there. The parents seems to be able to do this a bit more, but as soon as baby cries, very interesting. Oh, everybody in our family gets into action to stop it. <laughs> but it's interesting that. You know, we, I mean, you get caught for a good reason, survival mechanism. I mean, that's why they cry. But it's interesting to be with that sound, very soft sound. How can you be with it? How can you, kind of, it's very interesting. Then you have smell. And here again, to, to notice as you go about here, kind of, you know, are you caught by smell? Or are you just uh, kind of aware of the smell? inside the room, outside the house. How is it? How is it with smell? Do you get caught or not? Personally, I have this interesting practice with, uh, again, the neighbor, the farmer, the lady, who is very friendly. But uh, once a week, we get this wasp of a plastic burning. And I find it interesting because I can, mm, plastic burning, Mm, she made a fire, mm, being with it, being with it, uh, uh, being with it. It's interesting, this kind of movement, you go in and out of being caught, not being caught. And the difference between that is interesting to notice. Then there is taste. I mean, for you, this is the only thing left, you know, enjoyment, I hope, is food here. And to kind of notice, you know, how are you with the food? Because, you know, you. You see it first and then you kind of add it on the plate and you start to eat it. And I find on retreat you never know what you're going to get. I mean in America when you go on retreat they list all the ingredients. I mean it's amazing how many they put in. And you can read that and you say yes, 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 yeah I have a mmm, sounds good. And then you start to eat and you're totally surprised by the way it tastes. You know, it's kind of, you never know. But and it's interesting. It tastes good. Mm, I want more. This is kind of the immediate. You kind of look. You know, is there any left? <laughs> oh, if you just start to taste it. Mm, 
I'm not going to get rid of it without anybody saying this. Anyway, noticing. What do we do? How are we? Uh, we use the food. And I think what is interesting with food is in terms of new and old experience. We can see something there in daily life when we eat something for the first time after a long time and it's amazing. It tastes so good. Wow, you never had such a couscous or such a paella or whatever it is. You're like, wow, that was so good. And then of course, it was so good you want to repeat the experience. You go the next day, you have exactly the same dish in the same place at the same time. And it is a little so-so. Why is that? Why is that? It's because to me, you know, often we get caught not in the object itself, but in the newness of the experience. And then we try to repeat the new experience. But a new experience, as soon as it is experienced, it is old. And then, then we need to have a new experience of another kind. And then, in a way, that's why I think sometimes we're very stressed, trying to have all the time these new experiences. So again, looking at that, at that level. Then there is sensations. Again, kind of when we in contact with our body, how do we feel? You know, like we're sitting and it's, you know, kind of a certain amount of sitting and sometimes, sometimes we are in the no mind. There are discomfort, but we're totally okay with it. There is space around it. We're not caught by it. We're not colored by it. We just sit there with whatever happened in that moment. And then sometimes we sit there and ah, we don't, ah, we sit there, but it's kind of like an endurance test. We get caught in the kind of all the pain in the knee or in the ankle or in the neck or it's kind of it's interesting to kind of see again. You know, that we, and of course it's natural to be caught by discomfort, but to see how there is movement there, how we feel when we get caught, how is it when we're not so caught or when we're not caught at all. And then, there are stories in the mind, there are thoughts. And meditation <coughs> is a great opportunity to see what goes on in the mind. And in the mind there are all kinds of stories, all kinds, all sorts. You kind of non-stop, kind of the brain doing its thing. Something you saw, something you heard, something you worry about, whatever. Very interesting. And in a way, to me, I think that's also we get caught by our thoughts. We proliferate with them. We kind of exaggerate. We kind of, it's very interesting when we, they're so unsubstantial. And actually they can cause us so much pain. It's interesting when you kind of suddenly think, I am stupid. But are you really stupid? You might have done something which was not that clever and as kind of, you know, difficult result. So are you stupid? It's interesting how we, we have a thought and then we identify with it and then we get stuck. And then it's really very difficult. It kind of, you know, freezes us. It kind of reduces, you know, the way we feel in that moment. So, you know, again, playing, kind of noticing that. 
being caught by the thought, not being caught by them. And then there is another quote. And this one, that's what it says, it kind of follow a little about thought. For ordinary man or woman is Buddha, and defilements are awakening. A foolish passing thought makes one an ordinary person, while an awakened second thought makes one a Buddha. A passing thought that clings to sense objects is defilement. Well, a second thought that frees one from attachment is awakening. That in a way this is when we sit in a meditation on a retreat, I feel this is where we are, in a way. First, kind of in a way it's set out, what, what are we doing here? For ordinary men or women is Buddha, and defilements are awakening. I think in a way that the Buddha is nowhere else but us in this moment. And defilement are nothing else than awakening. That actually often we have this idea that we want to be somebody else, we want to be somewhere else, we want to be what we read about, you know, if you have this amazing experience and you are like this, or the Buddha was like that, or that great teacher was like that, and really I am really not like this, and how am I going to ever become like this? And it seems to be this kind of huge endeavor. How could I ever? When actually I think Huyen here is saying, right here, right now, yourself is a Buddha. It is not somebody else, somebody else, somewhere else. You are kind of in a way the stuff the Buddha is made of. And the same way with the defilement. The defilement are the stuff or with awakening can be made, can be kind of uh, originate. I think it's very important to see that, that we're not trying to be or to go somewhere else. And I think that's why at one level the meditation is so difficult. Because we have all these grandiose ideas of what the meditation <laughs> is going to do for us or we hope will do for us. And we sit, and who is sitting here? Well, this ordinary person having these ordinary thoughts and, you know. But this is kind of, you know, where the Buddha originates, where the awakening originates. I think we have to be careful with this frustration, kind of uh, engendered by this kind of wanting something else. Then he goes on to say, a foolish, a foolish passing thought makes one an ordinary person. Well, an awakened second thought makes one a Buddha. And I think that we can experience in meditation. You know, for a few moments, you're going to totally lost in some kind of weird, I mean, kind of unconsequential thing you saw on TV. And then, oh, I'm here. Mm -hmm. Meditation, yes, yes, you know, mm -hmm. I am here. And then back to the question, to the breath. And then, yes, in that moment, you are really present, you're really here. And so I think, in a way, it's very important to see that there is this movement, that we move in and out of awareness, 
in and out of presentness. But actually, we are not stuck. We are not stuck in our ordinary kind of whatever is going. And at the same time that this kind of taste of awakening, taste of awareness, taste of freedom, it is generally fleeting. Because what we would love is that we finally get awakening, this is it, you know, we don't need to talk about it, you know. Don't, so then, you know, permanent bliss, you know, outside forest. But it is not that way. And in a way to know that, that we can be in it, and then, oh, it disappears. And then again, like in a way, it depends a little on what we do. And that's why we then said, a passing thought that clings to sense object, that is defilement. Mm-hmm. While a second thought that frees one from attachment, that is awakening. So in some way we have a choice. But a lot of the time we don't exercise this choice. I think a lot of the time we just go along our pattern. And I think that's why I'm interested in pattern, because that's what kind of in a way makes us follow kind of what we do all these reading. When I think, you know, meditation gives us a choice to kind of to be aware and awake in this moment or to be caught in the moment. Then the next one, this is a real Zen brain stopper. But I thought, I think there is something in it. So I think, you know, I would like to read it. Let's see what we can make of it. To let not a passing thought rise up is mind. To let not the coming thought be annihilated is Buddha. So, you know what is it saying? I think what is it saying is that when a, when a, a passing thought appears, how can we let it not proliferate? But still have it. This is the thing. How can we have a thought without proliferating with it? Because in a way, a thought, when it appears, is like a, a little seed. The, ti- the tiny seed of a huge plant is a tiny seed. And if you don't water it, you don't do anything with it, it's just a tiny seed. But if we water it and then, and if you get lots of compost, then it becomes really huge. And so in a way, I think that's what he's saying. When a thought passes by, can it just pass by? Or do we catch it? And we kind of, you know, then it proliferates. Then it says, how can, to not let, to let not the coming thought be annihilated, destroy this Buddha. And then it's talking about how can we let go? How can we let the thought pass without repressing it, without sitting on it, without pushing it away? Because often that's what we try to do in meditation. We sit here, we try to be with the breath, then we have the thought, and we say, oh, this is terrible, I should not have the thought. I'm such a bad meditator, I must come back. <laughs> and then it's a fight. And actually what you do when you're in a way 
push the foot down, you judge it, really, you're actually giving it more energy. And I think that's what he's saying. How can you let the thought pass by so that it doesn't become bigger, but also how do you not, not destroy it so it also doesn't become bigger? And I think, you know, this is a challenge when thoughts arise. How can we be with them? And I had this experience you know, when I was on a retreat for a month in silence uh, two or three years ago in America, that uh, my job was to cut the vegetable in the morning. And uh, so every morning I went to cut the vegetable and every morning there were tons of capsicum, peppers, red, green, yellow, and I cannot eat them whatsoever. So I would come and then huge pile of peppers to cut every day. I mean they were kind of crazy about peppers there. <laughs> and I saw so I was doing it, you know, going along, kind of seeing these peppers ah, here again and uh, getting kind of a little more every day a little iller with my stomach and that's another story. And at one point I was walking and I saw the, the clouds going through the sky. And I thought, I have a choice with these peppers. That they can be like the clouds passing through the sky. So I can have the peppers just passing through my vision. You know, one pepper, two peppers, three, <laughs> green, yellow, red, you know, Or I could be like a hedgehog, you know, like a hedgehog, everybody knows, little animal with quills. I could be like this, and then the pepper would stop, drop and mess, you know, and stick to the hedgehog. And then it would rot there, you know, rotting pepper. Not very interesting. But often I think that's what we do. You know, can we, I think this quote is about, can we let things pass by? Can we do this? And I think meditation is about actually helping us to do that. So that we are not like hedgehogs, on which things just pile up and pile up and kind of rot and rot and not very pleasant. So, anyway, that's my kind of uh, the way I would look at that quote. Then another one, this is also in kind of a little of a Zen brain kind of a season, but I think it says something which is useful for meditation. In the daily activities of a student of the path, to empty object is easy, but to empty mind is hard. If objects are empty, the mind is not empty, mind will be overcome by object. Just empty your mind and objects will be empty of themselves. What does that mean? Fascinating, very interesting. Because I think what it is saying, I think to empty objects, I think is one of the things we often do or hear about in a spiritual path, is that Things are illusory, things are unsubstantial. And we also have that experience. When we sit in meditation, sometimes you feel yourself kind of, you feel like you dissolve. You feel your body is not as solid. 
as it is generally. You feel more unsubstantial, you feel more kind of, you know, there is this kind of dissolving in a way, this emptying in a way. But I think we have to be careful, because this is in a way, if we just do this with matter, that is just matter that is empty, then actually if we don't empty the mind, for me, emptying the mind is not grasping, not speaking, it's not that there is nothing in the mind, but that the mind, that the whole being, doesn't grasp, doesn't stick, is not colored, is not caught. And I think this is often one of the problems in meditation, is that if you have this experience of emptiness, that the body is empty, the object is empty, that things are unsubstantial, then you think this is it. I am awakened, and then the next minute you think, I can do whatever I want. Personally, I don't see how the two go together, but that seems to be what happens when you have this experience of the emptiness of an object, the emptiness of matter. And I think the problem, as Tawi says, is that if objects are empty, but the mind is not empty, the mind will be overcome by objects. And I think that's why a lot of the time, that when the objects like that are empty but not the mind, then you have an illusion of emptiness. And so, in a way, that's when we, you get caught. And that's why you have all these stories of these great masters. You have these great teachers with this amazing experience, and then they get, seem to get caught by sex, alcohol, and money and there is all this scandal. And I read a book, it was very interesting. It's called um, Shoes at the Door. Interesting kind of a Zen book. And it's about the pitfall, what happened to a, a teacher in America and who had sex with lots of students and was married and they were married too and finally, you know, it kind of it burst and then, you know, there was lots of trouble. But what I find interesting in the book is that the way the title shows at the door is because finally people decided to do something when they noticed the door, at the door of uh, either his door, her door, you know, shoes of one or the other, who should not have been there, because obviously they were having sex during a retreat or something. Anyway, but what is interesting to me is that, why is it, or you hear about great teachers who kind of are alcoholic, and you think, come on, wait a minute. You know, if they're awakened, how can they be alcoholic? You know, what goes on? And to me, this is about that. That the objects are empty, but not the mind. And so then you get caught. You, you think that you have seen the emptiness, but actually you then get caught by sex, by money, by uh, kind of uh, alcohol. So I think, you know, to be careful there, that's what is, what is this kind of, uh, that what we're trying to do is actually emptying the mind, this no mind, but the no mind being, being free from grasping, being free from this proliferation, from this exaggeration. So that then, it doesn't mean that we're indifferent at all or that we are passive, but it means that we creatively engage with what we encounter that we actually respond differently to it. And of course you can respond to it in two ways. There is this lovely story, it's a little extreme, but when you have two months, 
a younger one and an older one, and a very beautiful woman, woman passed by. And the young monk said, oh, did you see that pretty woman? And the old monk said, oh, I don't know, but I think I saw a bag of bones passing by. <laughs> so in a way, there he could, he was not caught by the prettiness. He saw that, you know, like everybody else, he was like kind of a bag of bones, he was a skeleton. I know this is a little extreme. <laughs> but this is interesting, you know, to kind of, how can we see people as they are, and not in a way as we want them to be, as we kind of would like them to be. Or there is possibly a kind of a, a more creative attitude, but at some time, when you have this beautiful glass on the table, and there was a, 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 somebody, a Westerner, said, but you're supposed to be a renunciate. How come you still have this beautiful glass? And Atlantis said, it is beautiful, and it is very useful, and I use it, but for me, it is already broken. So actually for him, you know, the mind is empty, there is no grasping. So of course, he can use the object, because he will not be caught by it. I think this is very interesting to, when we talk of emptiness, to be careful that it does not mean that there is nothing. It does not mean that somewhere at some point there is this emptiness blocking, this kind of sacred, empty, kind of dark hole, and that it kind of we must find it or it must catch us either way. But actually, emptiness means that we are not inherent inherently existing. We are not existing independently of anything else. That we are actually very conditioned, very dependent on everything that keeps us alive at a very ordinary level. So in order to be careful of this mystical aspect of emptiness, but to see that emptiness is actually to see two things. To, to not grasp, to not be caught, and at the same time to see that everything is connected to everything else. Which actually to me emptiness, to really no emptiness, would lead to an ethical behavior. Because you realize cause and effect, you realize interdependency, you realize connection. And from that there is wisdom and there is compassion. Then there is another quote. And this one is about Master Tawi writing a letter to somebody who wrote him about obviously his son being ill. And so that's what he says. I take it your fifth son is not recovering from his illness. It is precisely when afflicted that you should carefully investigate and inquire where the affliction arises from. If you cannot get to the bottom of its origination, then where does the one who is afflicted right now come from? If you want to think, then think. If you want to cry, then cry. I love this quote because actually it is what I would call a multi-perspectival. You cannot say, look, you know, you are feeling afflicted, your son is very ill, your son might die, and you're very sad, and you really cannot, you know, you're really sad, and you really feel afflicted. 
And he said, you're all practitioner. So right there, look. Carefully investigate where does affliction arise from. And I think what he's saying there is actually what we try to do in awareness practice and also with the question to go into the experience. You're afflicted, but beyond the abstraction of it, what is it? What is in your thought? What is in your feeling? What are the sensations? So actually, you explore the state itself instead of being lost in the story of it and abstracting it. You think, look, you're afflicted right now. Where does this come from? How is it? My teacher, Master Cousin, had an amazing experience like that. He had not done any meditation, but his parents were Buddhists, and he became very ill when he was about 25. And so he was kind of lying on his bed of war, and he was really ill and unwell and everything, feeling pain everywhere. And a friend of his, a Buddhist meditator, came back. And the friend asked him, where does the illness lie? Master Cousin looked and looked and looked and looked and he could not find it and he felt so much better <laughs> and that's when he kind of, you know, the strength that, you know, if you go and do this uh, practice recite this mantra for three months and you'll be sorted and then he went and he was sorted and then he became a great master so, you know, it's interesting sometimes to look when we are afflicted where does this affliction come from? To really look into it at the root of it. But if you cannot do that, he's saying, if you cannot get to the bottom of its origination, then where does the one who is afflicted right now come from? He's basically saying, again, where do you come from in this moment? Who is this person who is suffering in this moment? And if you look in this moment, actually, there is this pain, but you are not this pain. You are actually, the, the pain is just part of this flow of condition. The condition that made you all the external conditions, all the internal conditions. And so, you know, in that questioning, in that moment, you realize you are more than this affliction. And in a way, what you also realize is that you are alive. And also the fact that this being, in this moment, this is a mystery. I think that's why also the question, what is this, is also to help us to not reduce ourselves to being this or that. But in a way to, who am I? Kind of, what is this person? That's what he's saying. Who is, where is, where does the one who is afflicted, where does that person come from? Who is he now? Now like this, right now, what is this person? So in a way to kind of really look inside that. And I think when we do this, then generally things open up. We are bigger than any thought, any emotion, any sensation. Or we can be. But then he said, if you can't do this, then if you want to think, then think. And this is something we can do. I think on meditation retreat, that sometimes we, we think that thinking is bad. No, I would not say thinking is bad. Thinking is what happens. That's what our brain does. But what we're trying to say is, can we bring space in the thinking? 
And I think sometimes if you really have something on your mind, you know, you sit in meditation and some theme keeps reappearing. It comes back, comes back, comes back. And instead of fighting with it, which I think is not very useful, then I think do what I call meditative creative thinking. Okay, for 30 minutes, once a day, you focus on that theme. But you don't think of anything else. You just think of that. This is a focus. Thinking about the theme, maybe some choice you have to make, or whatever it is. And for 30 minutes, you focus on it, but you focus on it differently. You focus on it creatively. Because generally, if we think of something, we repeat. We repeat, we go round and round. And here, meditative, creative thinking, I think, how can I think about this differently? How can I think something I have never thought before? How would somebody else think about it? So in a way, again, opening it up in that way. And I think sometimes this can be useful in meditation. To do this once a day, then you leave it for the whole of the day and then take it up the next day again. So again, one sometimes can play with that. And then, he goes on to say, if you want to cry, then cry. And I think this is very important to see that the meditation is not a path from having feelings from having feelings, sensations. So of course, we try to not be so caught by them. But if we feel sad, we feel sad. And the meditation is not going to change that. If we feel frustrated, we feel frustrated. It's kind of, you know, I cannot say to you, be joyful now, be peaceful now. This doesn't work. But actually, what you can do, and I think this is possibly the meditation can help them, is to kind of speak differently with the feeling, speak differently with the sensation, so that we can, if we can, to cry a little, and then it passes. Again, this idea of passing through, of not kind of, kind of weighing, not being charged, but just to pass through. So you cry, or if you are happy, you smile, or if you are frustrated, well, you just experience the frustration. And maybe during the walking period, I don't know, or the, you go and do some yoga, or you go and run if it does not fall down with rain. But in a way, you can play with those energies. I think this is important, that we don't ignore them, but we know them. But at the same time, we're not overwhelmed by them, because then this is problematic. And I remember Master Cousin used to do this thing, he used to be asked to do a uh, death ceremony, especially with his people he knew. So he would kind of uh, do a death ceremony and then he would give a talk. And then in the talk he would say, there is no death, there is no life, there is no birth, very kind of ultimate type of thing. And then halfway through, generally there was a moment where for about three minutes he would then suddenly cry. Oh yes, you know, cry, 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 because you know, he likes the guy, and you know, the guy is dead, you know, and he's sad. <laughs> you know, so he cries for three minutes, and then back to, there is no birth, there is no, and I loved it. And quickly to finish with the last one. Again, another letter, and another answer. Your letter informs me that your root nature is dim and dirt. The one who can recognize him and Tao 
is definitely not deal and dust. <laughs> so you see, I think it's very important that we have such tendency to judge ourselves, which is very self-defeating, I find. So you sit in meditation and you think, oh, you know, I'm done, and really, you know. And actually what Nasutari is saying, yeah, you know, clearly you are demon down, but you are not just that. Because you can recognize that you are demon down. <laughs> and the one who recognizes it is not demon down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.